Okay, you ready for this? Today is just the, the pulling together all the loose ends, because again, these four previous seri uh, series items we've done through these four weeks, I really encourage you, if you haven't seen them, go back online to our YouTube channel and watch each of these um, series numbers, one through to four, and today is uh, really pulling it together. This is big picture stuff. I want to, us to look at, want to zoom out, look at the Bible, look at God from a macro view rather than a micro view. You ready for it? Okay. okay. So, is God behaving badly? I think we see that God doesn't behave badly, although some people think he does. So, about three years ago in the UK, there were two major newspapers that are very popular, and they came up with these big banner headlines. The first one was from the Express. It said, the Bible was wrong. See, so emphasized, uppercase, that was the way it was. The Bible was wrong. The civilization that God ordered to be killed, and it was emphasizing that killed, God ordered them to be killed, but they're still alive and kicking. Ooh, okay. And another one on the same day published. Bronze Age DNA disproves the Bible's claim. See, the Bible's wrong. DNA has proven the Bible was wrong. That the Canaanites were wiped out. So they're saying the Bible claims that the Canaanites were wiped out, but DNA has proved the Bible wrong. A study here says that their genes live on in modern-day Lebanese people. Hmm, so, okay, so here the Bible's wrong and science has proven the Bible wrong. So let's just go back and look in the Bible itself. What does the Bible actually say? Not what people say it says. So Numbers 33, it's talking about the Canaanites, and Pastor Ants has talked a lot about the Canaanites, who were the people in the land of Canaan. They were a very ungodly lot, involved in child sacrifice and all sorts of um, things that weren't so good. And uh, here it says in the Bible, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, in other words, drive them out, then those of the, them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they'll, they'll be a problem. They will trouble you in the land where you dwell. Okay, so it's just about driving them out, not killing them. And then it goes on in more detail. Manasseh, who was one of the tribes of Israel, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages. And it goes on about three or four other uh, regions and their villages. The Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Okay, so is it saying that they got wiped out? No. They just didn't get driven out completely. And Ephraim, who's another tribe of uh, Israel, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. So this is, um, uh, seems to be a bit of a different trend from what the newspaper said. What about moving to the New Testament now? And here we are, Jesus, uh, in the first century. He went out from the area of Israel, went up to the area of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman so here we have a Canaanite from the Canaanite people who were allegedly wiped out by the uh, Old Testament people. A Canaanite, and she's a woman as well, and she's come up to Jesus and she says, uh, have mercy on me, O son of David. So here she came up, she was in, acting out of faith, she had a need in her life, and Jesus commended her for her faith. So here she is, a Canaanite woman living in the area of Tyre and Sidon in the New Testament. Hmm, okay. Well, the question is, where are Tyre and Sidon? Okay, that sounds familiar. Oh, surprise, they're actually in Lebanon. Tyre is the uh, seventh biggest city in Lebanon today, and Sidon is the third biggest. So a Canaanite woman living in Tyre and Sidon. So when we find DNA that shows that Canaanite people are still living in Lebanon, why are we surprised? It should be Bible's uh, account of history confirmed. DNA, yeah, no, it's Bible was proved wrong. 
So, so many people are attacking the Bible, and yet they're not actually going back. So, it's really like this. It's genuine fake news. Some reporters just can't get it right. They don't do their research because they're pushing an anti-God agenda, isn't it? So, have a, a grain of salt when you read different uh, headlines and things in the newspaper, on the websites and so on. What does the Bible really say, rather than what people are forcing it to say? Okay, so you ready? And also, welcome to everyone online as well. We are streaming the service out, and this... Uh, so our messages, as all the other ones uh, have been as well, will be online on our YouTube channel. So I really encourage you to link them together, share them, and to look at them in more detail. Because we're going to be covering quite a bit this morning as we just pull these loose ends together. Okay, so the question today is, is God actually inconsistent? And I'm talking about inconsistent, and I'm talking big picture here, Old Testament versus New Testament. So here we have the Old Testament God is the New Testament God different to the Old Testament God? Is God sort of, sort of semi-schizophrenic, different you know, manifestations? You know, different, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not belittling schizophrenia, but sometimes people have that idea of you know, almost different, two different people. And so, should we have a look at this? Yep. Yeah. Is God inconsistent? That's the final question, which pulls together all these other things about God behaving badly. Being inconsistent is also behaving badly if you're unpredictable. So Pastor Ants, when he introduced this series, gave this quote from Professor Richard Dawkins, who's one of the, the highest profile neo-atheists, you know, people who are evangelizing strongly for atheism, trying to convert people to the religion of atheism. And yes, atheism is a religion, it's a worldview about uh, how we got to be here, why we're here and where we're going. So here is Professor Dawkins in his own words in the God Delusion book, which was very popular, came out a few years ago. Millions of people have read this book. And so they've been fed this idea about the God. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. So the Bible's fiction, and this God character, he's, he's about as bad as you can get in, in um, villains in all fiction. He's jealous, and he's proud of it. He's petty, he's unjust, he's unforgiving, he's a control freak, he's vindictive, he's a bloodthirsty um, ethnic cleanser. These are strong words, aren't they? And wait, it gets there's more. I've, I've highlighted these in red because we've covered these in our series. He's misogynistic, that means hates women, okay? So is God sexist? Pastor Ansh said, no, God is not sexist. He's homophobic, does he hate homosexual gay people? No, he doesn't. Is he a racist? Does he hate every other race apart from the chosen people of Israel? No, he doesn't. We've covered those in this series. But then it goes up another level. He's infanticidal, he kills children. He's genocidal, he kills out whole people groups. He's filicidal, he kills his own children. He's pestilential, he brings upon infectious diseases. He's uh, megalomaniacal. In other words, he's got grand delusions about his own importance. This is God saying he's got grand delusions about his own importance. He's sadomasochistic. That means you derive sexual pleasure from inflicting pain. And these are the things that are, uh, he's assigning to God and his character. He's capricious. In other words, his personality changes wildly. He becomes you know, nice one day and violent the next. And he's also a malevolent bully, angry bully type person. So it's amazing how much effort Professor Dawkins has gone into debunking this God he claims not to believe in, but I believe he really actually does believe in God, but he hates him. It's sad, isn't it? Um, so this is a very influential book. Many people have read that. They look at the Bible and they go, how could you believe this? The God of the Old Testament is really, really bad, horrible character. And um, many people have this picture of God. You know, you dirty sinner, zap, you know, like Thor throwing the thunderbolts down. Going to zap you, you do another thing wrong, I'm going to get you, boy. And sadly, some people, maybe some of you here, or maybe you know people who have actually 
had an experience of religion where this is being told, you know, and I've got a, a good friend who's actually in his early 70s now, and he was, went to school in the 1950s, he, it was a faith-based school, and he and some of his friends were caught stealing apples from an old lady's garden down the road, and was taken by the sister back to the school and given the cane, and he still remembers, she said, you're going to go to hell, boy, if you do that sort of stuff, and so that whole condemning zap you, you steal apples, you're going to burn in hell, and so he had that, that whole almost withdrawing from religion because of the picture of this sort of God that is, uh, was drilled into his young mind. So this Old Testament God sounds pretty bad, doesn't he? So I think we should just get rid of the Old Testament. Some people, sadly, are saying we need to disconnect from the Old Testament. We need to be just New Testament believers. Forget the Old Testament. It's indefensible. We need to cut free from it. So let's just upgrade our God to a really nice one. So here we have a picture that's actually on our lounge wall. It's a beautiful picture that Desmond's family has passed down to us. And it was actually um, painted in the 19, uh, late 30s, early 40s in World War II. So here we have children, you know, it's very English, of course. Uh, here's Jesus, meek and mild, welcoming the children in, you know, with their own interests. And they just, he's just blessing them and spending time with them. So he's, this is so, such a wonderful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture. And here's Jesus. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for as such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child should not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands upon them. It's beautiful, isn't it? Here's the picture of Jesus taking time out to welcome children who were looked down upon in those days. He blessed them and encouraged them. And what about this whole thing? You know, the Old Testament's full of um, revenge and punishment and so on. But Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In other words, something happens to you, you do it back again. It's all in the law. If anyone... But he says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek as well. Um, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. In other words, going the extra mile. That term, go the extra mile, is from the Bible as well. And so here we see Jesus saying, don't retaliate. Try to bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Very different, isn't it, we, we think, compared to what we see in the Old Testament. But again, we've, we've talked about one God, and uh, Pastor Dance multiple times has talked about the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And it says, You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And Jesus added on to that, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself, which is what the law says as well. So we're to love God, and we're to love our fellow man. And uh, it also says in Hebrews 13, verse 8, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. And Jesus said, whoever seen me has seen the Father, and the Father and I are one. So here we've got this idea of Old Testament, New Testament. Scripture seems to say it's the same God. It's not two different gods. So how do we reconcile this sort of very different, apparently different gods, Old and New Testament? Well, it's interesting, just reinforcing again Jesus' deity. Because many people say, well, Jesus was a good guy. You know, he taught some good uh, things back in the day. And he was a man of his time. And he taught some um, nice ethics. And, but he was just really a good guy, nothing more. But Jesus, over and over again, affirmed that he was actually God. You know, he was God come down, born of a virgin. And, you know, he was one of us, but also fully God and able to pay the price on the cross for our sin. And if we go back to the Old Testament, to when Moses was... Um, being told to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, the people of Israel who are in slavery. And Moses said, well, I'm actually not very good at speaking. You know, I'm, 
I don't know what to say. And God said, I'll go with you. And his brother Aaron, of course, spoke with him as well. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? That's a good question. What's God's name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to them, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay, so God's name said by himself is that I am. Just say, I am has sent me. So God's name, God's many, got many names, but I am is one of them. So here Moses say, I am has sent me. We move forward to the New Testament and here's Jesus. And he's been in front of the Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders, and he's affirming that he is actually the son of God and they're getting really, really worked up. This guy's blaspheming. How dare he say that he is equal with God? And he talked, Jesus talked about, you know, before Abraham I was. And so they're saying, what? You're not even 50 years old and yet you've seen Abraham, our forefather, you know, from thousands of years ago. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, and I was I'm reinforcing this, listen to me, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, can you imagine, when, you know, going back to when God said, my name is I am, and here's Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is clearly saying, I am God, I am Jehovah, I am, you know, God himself. And so this really, they were getting the stones and were going to kill him because he said that he was God. So here we have the same God, I am in the Old Testament, Jesus saying, I am in the New Testament. It's pretty neat, isn't it, how it all ties together. Okay, so let's just zoom back again, this whole big picture again, again, reinforcing what we've already heard in, this, in the series before. One is that God is pure, he's holy, he's perfect. He cannot have sin in his presence. Sin just means falling short, you know, less than perfect. It's, a, it's actually an archery term, it means when you fire an arrow, if it falls short of the, of the target, it's a, it's a sin. It's basically falling short of the mark. And um, so God is perfect. And so he cannot have sin in his presence. Otherwise, he would be less than perfect himself. And so he always must judge sin. He's got to deal with sin. Otherwise, he's not just. If he lets things, oh, don't worry about that. I'll just overlook that. He's not being a just God. So he needs to deal with sin, with uh, injustice and all these things. Otherwise, it would violate his holiness, and it's, sin is what's um, violated his whole creation. So God's always going to deal with sin, and he always has, and he always will. So that's the key thing, first of all. God is holy and just. But if you look at the Bible as a whole, again, right from Genesis chapter 1 right through to Revelation 22, the Bible's got we call, almost like a golden thread woven right through the whole narrative of Scripture, linking all the books together, all the accounts right through history of both holiness, God's holiness and judgment, but also mercy, love, and grace right through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And we're going to look at some of that uh, quickly today. So this is one of the pictures I use when I'm uh, speaking for Creation Ministries. We call it the seven C's of biblical history because the Bible is a history book. It contains history from creation right through the history of Israel and so on, and it leads on to the future when the new heavens and the new earth will be uh, consummation was put back, recreated the way it was intended to be. So here we have the perfect creation, no sin, death, suffering, pain, bloodshed. And then of course the curse came in, God stepped back from his creation when Adam and Eve said, we want to run this show, you know, I want to have my eyes opened. And so they ate the fruit and God said, I love you, but I'm going to step back from that. So the whole show started to fall apart. And then we have catastrophe, God's judgment upon sin about 1600 years later. And when the whole earth was reshaped and destroyed because of the flood, and only uh, Noah and his family were taken through that and saved to repopulate the earth, along with uh, groups of animals. 
And then, of course, we go on to confusion where the people all stayed in one place. God said, spread out across the earth and enjoy it and, and populate. And, but no, they stayed in one place and said, we're going to build a tower to be like God. We want to make a name for ourselves. And God's saying, how long do I have to put up with you guys? And so he, he then confused the languages and forced them to spread out because they couldn't understand each other. And so we have this confusion. And then we have the covenant where Abraham was given that covenant, I'll bless you to be a blessing to the nations. And that's the, what we call the messianic line pointing to Jesus through people of Israel who were very imperfect. They had clay feet, they fell over, but God made a promise to bring the Messiah through their line. And of course, in due season, Jesus came into history. And then later on, of course, we'll have the whole lot restored back the way it was. So that's the big picture end to end of the Bible. And this is a really neat picture too here. This is actually showing the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, showing the cross references within the Bible. Every, you know, prophecy going forward and also uh, looking back into history. No human being could ever pull, pull together 40 different people over hundreds, many centuries, writing that books with that level of connectedness. It's amazing, isn't it? Showing that it's divinely authored by God through human, uh, human writers. Okay, so it's really just looking at this whole thing. It comes down to this book, the Bible. So we've recently had the election, and we've had uh, things we've had to vote on and pray about, you know, protest in some cases, or vote based on our values, whatever it is. We're seeing that's just really the, the fruit in society. It's not actually the root cause. The root cause is either God's word is our basis for our life and our morality, or man's opinion is. You know, man's opinion evolves morality. And so we see this whole idea, evolution and creation are just the accounts of how we got to be here based on whether God's word is true or man's word is true. And we see humanism, man is God, or we see Christianity is the tree that grows out of these soils. So it's a big picture. It's actually coming back to do we trust God's word as the instruction book from our manufacturer that shows us the history of the world, shows us his character, and also good instructions for living a good life? Or do we chuck that out and we actually go back to man's opinions, the evolving ideas of man that change day by day? So it's really, Pastor Ant's talk last week about the Bible demands a response. So my first challenge is how do we deal with this book? Do we treat this as it's meant to be read? Or do we actually say it's really a book of its time, it's dusty, it's been proven wrong by science, and it's not really relevant in our modern day? Or do we actually base our lives on this and the God who gave it to us? Okay, so first response point is, how do we respond to the Bible? Okay, so, um, a small plug for Creation Ministries, but we've, we've got a website called crea uh, creation.com, got thousands of articles on there. There's a great search engine, there's YouTube channels, there's podcasts, all to equip you and to give you biblically-based answers to the things that are out there. For example, you know, well, it's very topical for today, is God a moral monster? This is a great article just dealing with the things we've covered in the series. How do we deal with some of these Old Testament difficult passages? And so please feel free to make use of that website. It's, um, it's a really powerful tool for you, creation.com. Okay, so I just wanted to just... Um, towards you know, the second bit here is just to go through looking at the Old Testament and looking at the New Testament. So the Old Testament we've seen is full of judgment and things happening. Yes, it's got that in there. But the Old Testament's full of mercy and grace and goodness. And so the Old Testament shows how God had to deal with sin before Jesus came. So they had the sacrificial system and God had to intervene in history and deal with uh, sin along the way. But there's a beautiful thread over and over again of God always providing a way out, always providing mercy and 
redemption for people who trust him. So we've got these scriptures here. The Lord, the Lord God from Exodus, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sounds like somebody who's slow to anger, since talked about last week. Whole thing, it's not, God does get angry, yes. He gets righteously angry when he needs to, but he's slow to anger and he gives us time to repent. And again from Jonah, brilliant account last week of Jonah who wanted to see Nineveh get nuked because they were absolutely evil people. And when God relented because they repented, he said, I knew you'd do that. You're a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. It's not quite the same as Professor Dawkins sees God, is it? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their hands, right hand from their left hand. So again, a people group who were desperately lost and God reached out in love to them and they, they returned to him. So see, Jonah didn't have the heart of God for the people of Nineveh. So New Testament, you know, we've talked about Jesus loving the children and bringing people to him and blessing them, but he also spoke about judgment. He said that sin has consequences. And so Jesus himself used some pretty shocking words. You know, he was the one that kicked over the tables in the temple and told the Pharisees, you whitewashed um, tombs, you mausoleums full of dead men's bones, you vipers, you hypocrites. And he said even to King Herod, that fox, you know, he, was, he didn't mince his words. And so when Jesus got righteously worked up, he was angry. You know, he pointed out and he said things, he basically called a spade a spade. And he says, if anyone of you causes uh, any of these children to lose their faith in me, it's better that they put a millstone around your neck and chuck you in the sea because that punishment is not going to be good if you've caused people to backslide and to lose their faith. These are strong words, aren't they? Here's Jesus, all meek and mild, and he's saying, you know, you get it wrong and you turn people away from me, you're going to have to answer for it. And he even goes further. He says, if your eye causes you to sin or your hand causes you to sin, he's obviously talking figuratively, but he's saying it's better to be maimed and go into the kingdom of God than to go into hell intact. And so this whole thing about hell and judgment, if you turn away from God, there is a, a price to pay. And Jesus himself, the loving children on his knee, Jesus is saying these strong words, these hard words. Okay, so we're seeing a bit of contrast here. The New Testament has got some pretty difficult stuff in it. The Old Testament's got some really neat accounts of God's grace and goodness. So quickly going through the Old Testament, I want to show you about three or four examples of God's mercy amongst judgment. Okay, so God, again, I reinforce that God always provided a way out in the Old Testament. There's always a way through punishment and judgment. God's providing a beautiful thread right through. So in the flood, we talked about that. Noah and his family were saved by being faithful, building the ark, trusting God to protect them during the, the year of the flood. They were in the ark for just over a year, not 40 days. It was actually 371 days, if you read scripture. Um, and so Noah and his family were protected and preserved because they trusted God. And Noah is accounted as being a faithful man. And the plagues of Egypt, again, God had to judge the, uh, the gods of the Egyptians, all these things they worshipped. And so each of the 10 plagues were basically dealing with each of the gods of Egypt. Things they worshipped, God said, I'm bigger than that. I'm going to destroy that. I'm going to bring this down. And eventually the 10th um, plague was God judging the firstborn right through. And the place of salvation, there was the Passover lamb. You know, we celebrate that. Jesus, the Passover lamb, whose blood was put on the door posts in the frame. And anyone that was in a house that had the protecting cover of the blood, lamb of the blood, 
were saved. Even Egyptians or foreigners, if they trusted God and went into a house with the Hebrews, they were saved and protected. So it wasn't just for the Jews only, it was for anyone who trusted God and came under that protection of the Lamb's blood. See again, so God had to judge sin, he had to deal with these foreign gods, but he provided a way of safety and way of salvation. And now, coming back to Canaan again, this is what I really want to focus on this, because this ties our whole series together beautifully. So we've read about the Canaanites, a different race, and God had to judge them because of their sin, this whole thing. And so the uh, story of Jericho, you know, the, the first city to put up a defiance against the armies of God, the Israelites as they came over, and they held out, they wanted to uh, try to fight. And so, you know the story, seven times around the city, and eventually the walls caved in, and the Israelites went in and basically dealt with the city that was holding out against God. But there was a woman in there called Rahab, and she was a prostitute, a sex worker, as we talk about today. And she was a Canaanite, okay? So you've got a Canaanite, you've got a woman, you've got a sinner, a prostitute, and yet she protected the spies and she trusted God. She knew that God was real and that he was going to deal to Jericho. And she said, please, when you come to conquer the city, as I know your God will give it to us, Please save me and my family. And so the Israelites said, yes, if you leave a scarlet rope hanging out the window, we will note that house there and we will leave anyone in there alive and protect them. And so she trusted all her family came together into this house. Of course, the city was destroyed, but her family all survived and were adopted into Israel as people. Okay, so this thing again. Because of her faith and trust in God, she was saved. This is really beautiful. It goes on more into scripture. So here we have in Hebrews 11, which we call the, uh, it's like the hall of faith, a whole list of people right through history who over and over again express faith in God. And their names are all listed like a, you know, the sports hall of fame. So and so and so and so. But here we have Rahab in Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verses uh, 30 and 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. You see, so here she is. She did not perish because she was faithful. But what's beautiful is that, obviously, she's mentioned in, in Scripture, but if you look at the big picture again of the Bible, and here I have a very quick, the Papa, you know, a genealogy going back from Jesus back through the lines of Mary and Joseph. Obviously, Joseph was um, Jesus' stepdad. He wasn't actually his biological father. God was. Um, but Mary, so you've got these two lines of ancestors going back to King David, a common ancestor, and then back right through to Adam, a real person in history, our original ancestor. And all the passport photos are there for your enjoyment. <laughs> but I wonder if we just focus in on four characters. Here we have King David and his immediate ancestors. So we have Jesse, his dad, Obed, his granddad, we have Boaz, his great-granddad, and Salmon, who's his great-great-granddad. These are guys all leading down to one of the biggest and most famous kings in all of history. What do we see in scripture? It says, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Oh. So Boaz's mother was Rahab. You see, so it's interesting. Here she is, she married Salmon, and then Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now Ruth was a Moabite. She came from, she was a foreigner and a woman who was adopted in. So here we have these two ladies who are adopted into scripture, into the house of Israel, and into the genealogy of King David and Jesus. So here is God, you know, anti-woman? No. Is he anti-foreigners, Canaanites? No. Is he anti-sinners? No. It's all about faith, isn't it? This is a beautiful story of redemption. You know, Rahab is a powerful affirmation of God's goodness and love for all people. 
And again, just reinforcing again, the Old Testament judgments were judgments against the gods who tried to defy God's uh, sovereignty. So Egypt and Canaan, of course, they were the big gods right up there in evilness, and God had to deal with each one of them. So just in finishing, what about this whole thing about heaven and hell? You know, surely you know, we read in Scripture about those whose uh, names were not written in the book of life, then they'll be you know, cast into outer darkness, into hell and so on. So how can a loving God, if somebody just um, stuffs up a wee bit in life, that maybe doesn't accept Jesus, and yet they're sent to hell for all eternity? That's massive overkill, isn't it? But the question is, you know, again, if God is holy, if he's perfect, and sin cannot be in his presence, and we choose not to be reconciled to him through Jesus, what else can he do? You know, he can't just say, well, don't worry about it, come on anyway. The only choice is you stay outside God's redemption. So it's not like he sends us to hell. We choose not to come out of that default position. Okay, so the key thing is we are not saved by works. We're saved by his, his love. And just in finishing here, the bad news, as we share the gospel with people, we have to realize that we're all sinners. We're all on the same platform. You know, We're all on the same basis. We cannot save ourselves. No amount of good works is going to save you. It's only through Jesus. Okay, so the salvation comes in through what God has done for us. Okay, so we're no better than anyone else. We're all sinners together. We do bad things because we're sinners, but God has provided a way through for Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I'm glad you did that for me. You, know, you came in and paid that price. So in, in closing, the last challenge I want to have is, again, as we look at the Bible, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to Jesus himself? So God has done everything he possibly could to try to redeem us back to him, but still give us free choice. We have to make that choice. So the final scripture is, here's Jesus talking to the disciples. And he said, well, who do people say I am? And some said, well, I'm you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. But then he said, well, who do you say I am? You know, who do you say I'm? Grant, who do you say Jesus is? You know, Saul, who do you say Jesus is? We actually personally asked Michael, who do you say Jesus is? And uh, Jesus answered him after he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, in other words, son of Jonah, as Anne's talked about last week. Wasn't the son of the Jonah of the big fish. That was centuries before, but here you are, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's awesome, isn't it? So it's a spiritual transaction and God will reveal who he is to us if we open our hearts to him. So in closing there, who do you say Jesus is? How do you respond to him? And so you know, we have the opportunity, I'm not going to pray, you know, get you to pray the sinner's prayer or whatever, but if you're in that position of maybe struggling with your God picture, wanting to come back in relationship with him, maybe this word of God is actually now becoming more credible, more um, something that's more enticing to you to be a book to book based your life on and God is now looking like not such a bad guy after all we really encourage you to come to that point of saying you know God just please accept me please make a way back for me and accept him into your heart we'd love to give you this uh, word of, of God to bring you into relationship with him and also the one card too we have this and it's online available on the online portal there tick the second box saying I'm recommitting my life I'm committing my life to Jesus and that's just the start we're not saved by ticking the box or saying a prayer. We just It's about faith, stepping out and beginning that journey to the Lord Jesus. So thank you all, and just really encourage you, how are you going to deal with the Bible? How are you going to deal with Jesus? And God does not behave badly. Okay, back to you, Ants. Thanks.